Yeah, on. not that again <laughs> hey can we um can we first play a quick game of um am i a terrible parent yeah but i bet the answer is going to be yes <laughs> so but yes let's play it bill feel, feel free to jump in on this <laughs> <laughs> we were just just a minute ago before we got on here we uh i was you know i have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old and we were watching jackass is that is that bad is that is it too soon for that or it would be be incredibly hypocritical now i will say this my my munchkins i've i've showed it to them as well now i don't yes now i don't call it by the name but I, and it's the very PG side of Jackass. It's like, yeah, like we did party boy and right. maybe a couple other things, but, but, um, <laughs> okay. So that makes me feel mildly better. Does it? <laughs> Until they start re- reciting lines in school. Yeah. Or, or, <laughs> right. or, you know, or reciting the stunts, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Much worse. Yeah. Placing, re-reenacting this stuff. placing electrical, uh, you know, charge cables onto their testicles, those type of things. Right. <laughs> exactly. And, and we, I guess we should let everybody know right now who the, the non T and nubs voices that's <laughs> coming through here. We are so pleased and excited to welcome to the show today as a special guest, Mr. Bill Keith station manager at 88 when the park and also hosts a show on WHFR. Is that out of Dearborn, Bill? Is that what yeah, it is? it's Henry Ford College in Dearborn. Do, a, do an actual introduction here, so my applause. Okay, all right. Let, you'll go ahead, do go an ahead. actual. Okay. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So, ladies and gentlemen, our special guest today, and a huge Kansas fan and expert, Mr. Bill Keith. All right, there you go. <laughs> <I> <laughs> nice, nice, nice applause. Yep. But yeah, I mean... Four decades, Bill, you've been able to be in a, in a business where if you're lucky to be in it for 10 years and make a living, you're probably fortunate. I mean, you've been able to make it work. Well, and being on the high school, non-commercial end of things probably makes things a little bit easier. If, if I was on a commercial radio station, I probably would have ended my career <laughs> a long time ago. Well, you certainly would have moved probably 50 yeah. times, you know? Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. be able to stay in the same place. Definitely. Can I tell kind of a funny ish 88.1 story from my childhood? Sure. So one time I called 88.1, probably asking them to play like smashing pumpkins or something, you know? And the DJ was um i remember i I don't i forget what i requested but they said oh that's not our format right now and i was like oh okay i didn't know there was a format they i think they you know the format at that time was like something different yeah so like a week later i called 89x and kelly brown was the d was the dj and, and i had like this huge crush on her even though i had no idea what she looked like and um and i got all nervous and i wanted to sound cool 
like I knew like radio stuff. So I was like, Hey, um, what's your format right now? <laughs> and she's like, huh? Cause you know, the DJs would, they would pick up the phone back then. It was like her. And I was like, your, your format, what's your format? And she's like, uh, I, I don't know. You know, <laughs> and then I was like, all right, well, can, can you just play, um, stone temple pilots or whatever, you know? But, uh, so, and then I learned that not all radio stations have formats. It was just 88 one that happened. Yeah. <laughs> Use that lingo. Yeah. Yeah. We always have to remind the, the students that not everybody picks up on the lingo because every once in a while it's, it's makes its way on the air. <laughs> right, like, right. People don't know what formats are and all that stuff. When we were growing up, the format to use the lingo at 881 was, it was like a college rock. I would describe it as now, but back then it was, it was more of an alternative underground. I mean, the, the, the branding of the station was underground, right? Well, and it would change during the day. They would have like the, the, the format would be like metal and then it would be classical. And then, so that, that was, you know. Yeah. I mean, depending, I forget when in the nineties we did like top 40 during the day and then, yeah. And then had some specialty shows. Yeah. There was the, the sanctuary was on Friday afternoons doing battle and all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. Bill, give us kind of a snapshot of the current happenings at the station, you know, to talk about how the last couple of years have gone. Cause I know 81's taken on a whole new kind of importance to the community since pandemic hit and all the things that have been happening, but you know, how are things at the station and what, what updates can you give us on all things 88 yeah, I mean, it's been, wow. I mean, I would have thought back two years ago when that, when COVID was starting, if you would have said, boy, this is going to be the case for two more years or longer, <laughs> I would have been surprised. I kept thinking it was going to be done in a matter of weeks or months that we would be back to normal, but. I would have jumped off a bridge. I'm glad nobody mentioned it. Yeah. I mean, lo and behold, here we are, but stations doing amazing things. I mean, being a really good media source during the during the past two years and being very community focused and uh, playing music that the community wants to hear and, and, and just also the local news and information and all the other things that people expect on the station. So that's been exciting. And the students, I mean, early on having to do it from home, some, sometimes broadcasting from their closets or from wherever they can find a quiet space. And the exciting thing is this year we're celebrating our 50th anniversary. Uh, station signed on in 1972. So um, that kind of a longevity is, is a real testament, I think, to the school district and the commitment that they've shown to, um, even during some pretty tough financial times, keep it up and running. When, when, help people to understand what it means to be student run, because I think some people hear that and they think it's some sort of token acknowledgement to students. But I mean, the station truly is run by students. And, and what most people hear is just what's on the air. But all the preparation, all the back end work, you know, a lot of the things that, that people just don't see, it's all done by the students who contribute to your staff. So t- talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, there's, well, there's myself and my, our assistant manager, John Krieger, we're the, I guess, two adults <laughs> most of the time. Um, and then everyone else on our staff, are students at the high school, we, we, we do have a part-time engineer who comes in on a contract basis to repair things and keep things up and running. But yeah, that it's students, students doing the DJ work, students doing uh, the live sports broadcasts or doing the news or pairing interviews and everything else that goes into it. And of course, we're working with them and trying to help them 
figure out how to do things. And both John and I end up on the air. I know John was on the other night helping out with a basketball broadcast because one of the kids couldn't do it at the last second. So John stepped in and helped out. But for the most part, it's the students doing the work and we try to stay in the background as much as possible and and, uh, try to support what they want to do. So let me get this straight, Bill. You're the adult supervision. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Sometimes, well, <laughs> after after 31 years of uh, being there, I, I can remember when I started. It was the 20th anniversary of the station, and um, or we were preparing for the 20th anniversary, and, and I thought to myself, "Wow, I wonder what it would be like if I'm still here when it's 50 years old." <laughs> like snap, there it is. And, there you are. Yeah. Uh, that's why. That's cool. Bill, I, well, you've seen a lot of trends come and go in the music world. How would you describe young people right now in 2022 music tastes? Because, the, you know, we talk about this a lot on the podcast. There's not like a centralized scene anymore. There's not, the trends are different. There's no radio that kind of controls what's cool and what's not cool. But what, what do you see right now in terms of music tastes? Is whatever it is uh, inspiring or... Is it uh, something that concerns you? <laughs> you know, I, I think back to when I was in high school and music was everything. I mean, music was your identity. Um, kids that were, well, in the mid 80s, if you were into, I guess they called it new music at the time or what would eventually be alternative music. It, it was really a part of who you were and, and you were kind of like identified or branded by the bands that you listen to. Now. I don't know if music is as important to kids. Like when I first started, if you offered up an opportunity to do a special music show around a genre and they could bring in the music and play whatever they wanted to play within legal requirements, but like if they wanted to do a ska show or a heavy metal show or whatever it might be, you'd have tons of applications. And now we don't get as many because uh, most kids don't collect music. They definitely don't buy CDs or, for the most part, vinyl. I mean, you get some kids that are buying vinyl. They get their first turntable or something. Uh, we do an assignment in the Fundamentals of Radio class where we have them do a CD review, an audio one, kind of patterned after NPR. And um, it used to be that kids, no problem, kids would have a CD at home. They'd have their favorite CD. They'd bring it in. they do a review. Now, most kids, they don't have a CD. They they don't even download music really much anymore. Um, they listen to streaming. So I guess they stream their favorite music. I have kids that are really into K-pop. So K-pop is kind of like a new, I guess, a new trend. Hip-hop's still really popular. I mean, there are kids that are into rock, but I don't know if like alternative rock is still a, as huge of a thing with, with a lot of kids. I mean, maybe certain bands, but... See a lot of Kansas t-shirts around the high school? Uh, no, no. <laughs> Aside from no, yours. <laughs> when we, well, when we do the CD review, you know, it's been interesting. We had some kids. We just finished the CD review assignment in the radio class. We had a kid do the first Van Halen album. We had a kid do, uh, and matter of fact, a female student did Pink Floyd's Animals. And wow. I was, Ooh, wow. I know I was an album that we've that featured album. here on two twins in an album. Oh, well, man. you know, I yeah. wasn't that familiar with that album. I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge Pink Floyd fan. So, I mean, dark side of the moon, uh, I don't go much beyond that. I mean, I, other than the big songs, she's doing this review and talking about the connection to animal farm. And, and I was like, wow, that's intriguing. 
I, I kind of want to go back and listen to it. So it was interesting to see kids that would go back and listen to older stuff or like someone did a, a Elton John Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And I thought, wow, that's kind of cool uh, that a kid's into that. Lastly, Bill, t- talk about the HFR show a little bit. Is this, I, I, when I've tuned in, it sounds like Bill Keith's Wonderland. Like you're able to just sort <laughs> of play whatever you want to play and, and that you have a lot of creative control over the playlist. Yeah, and- I started doing it around 97, 98, 99, somewhere in there. I had met folks from WHFR through like uh, high school and college radio groups that were a part of. And um, just interacting with them got me kind of longing for the days of college when I was at a college radio station, be able to do my own show. Because for the most part, I mean, I've done different shows at at 88.1, but for the most part, I don't do my own show unless I'm just filling in for a kid or something. But it got me longing to play music I wanted to play. And so I kind of jumped at the chance. They said, sure, if you want to come over, you can kind of audit the class and kind of slide on in and do your own show. And um, I kind of say that I'm doing singer-songwriters, Americana, indie rock, and then strain from there a little bit here and there and other type things. You play any Spinal Tap or? I have not played any Spinal Tap, but that, that could be interesting. That. That would be fun. Yeah. They're very, one of the things they are big about too, is that you don't play anything that's commercial. So if it's like hit anything that's a hit, they don't want it on the stage. Well, you could play, you could play something off shit sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> that, that wasn't well, a hit. Spinal, yeah, and Spinal's happy you could probably get away with, um, but like they, they cringe and, and they're always kind of having to fight back against it because some, somebody always kind of bends the rules there a little bit. Excellent. So if people want to tune in at whfr.fm, I know is the official site. Yeah. It's Saturdays at 10 a.m. Is that 10 right? 10 a.m. to 1. And it's if you're in the Dearborn area, Dearborn or like right of the immediate surrounding communities, it's at 89.3 on the FM dial, or you can listen online. I always say, uh, my, my wife always reminds me that she's my number one fan. And sometimes I jokingly say, you might be my only fan. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. There's people out there because I, I do get calls. Like somebody will call in and say, oh, what's that? Or, um, oh, love what you're playing. Can you play this particular artist? Or, or have you ever considered playing uh, this song? I, I think like several weeks ago, I got a request. Somebody was wanting to hear some obscure Neil Young song. So I was like, I think I have it at home somewhere. I'll have to dig that up. Well, they won't be able to get it on Spotify anymore. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I saw <laughs> that. Yeah. Great. yeah. All the memes that are, uh, are coming up from that. Yeah. Joe, Joe Rogan won Neil Young zero, I think was the final score of that. <laughs> I contest. think that's how it panned out for sure. So yeah, tune <laughs> I don't in. Think, I don't think Neil cares. I mean, I, I kind of wondered, is Neil doing this to promote his new album with Crazy Horse, that Byron album? Probably. probably probably a little bit of that, but probably, I mean, he's just kind of like a curmudgeon and he's just like, <laughs> screw you. <laughs> I don't care if Spotify has my music. I don't care if it gets played on Spotify. I have my money. So yeah, um, Clear, clearly. Yeah. yeah. He's out. He's out. So well, tune in to 10 a.m. on Saturdays, light from the underground, or as I call it, Bill Keith's Wonderland. Yeah. WHFR.FM. <laughs> Check it out. You get a glimpse into the mind and tastes of Mr. Bill Keith, who will also give us a glimpse of that tonight as we talk about Left Overture by Kansas. You know, one of the many reasons why you're joining us, you are a gigantic Kansas fan. T, Bill is one of the only people I've ever known that I can name a Kansas album and he could tell me who played on it. 
And that's not easy with Kansas. Yeah. Because this is one of those bands that had the multiple lineup changes across the years, you know, during the nerdy deets, we'll talk about the lineup on left overture, but so many members in and out and bill loved this band through all of their ups, downs and in-betweens. But Bill, would you say, I mean, would you say Kansas is your all-time favorite band? I don't know if they're my all-time favorite, but they're, they're definitely high on the list. Um, though it's kind of funny. I'm, I'm in like different, um, like I'm in a Kansas Facebook group and it's an interesting community because I mean, the widest variety of opinions on all their different albums, you'll get the person who absolutely loves their album freak of nature. And then you'll get the, uh, person who, uh, not so much. So, Hey, what do most people think, uh, you know, and I, sorry, nubs, if we were eventually, eventually going to get to this, but I'm so impressed with what they're doing now. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, I thought that, uh, what was it called? A prelude to whatever. Prelude implicit. Yeah. The prelude implicit. And then the most, I mean, I think they have that, that new singer. I don't know how new he is, but he's great. And uh, what they've been able to do within the last 10 years has been fantastic. Now do most of the super Kansas nerds, like in the Facebook group and whatnot, do they agree? Uh, yeah, or- I think so. I, I mean, of course everybody loves the, the first handful of albums that are kind of legendary. I mean, yeah. the, the original lineup of the group, but there's a lot of love for that current lineup. I mean, Ronnie Platt, the singer, you're right. He's, he's dynamic. That uh, was a great uh, pick to replace Steve Walsh. And, yeah. uh, and I mean, it was really probably time. I mean, Steve, I, I remember seeing them, I don't know, probably a couple of years before Steve stepped away. And, and uh, I mean, he, he was still putting it, putting his, effort into the show, but I don't know. He seemed kind of like he was ready to hang it up and cocaine's a hell of a drug bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. His, you see the pictures of him doing the handstands on the keyboard. And it's like, there was, there was something, something was flowing there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What we're going to get into this evening is certainly what most would consider the classic lineup of Kansas, kind of the heart of their commercial success. But we'll also talk about the fact that this band never got critical success. Even, even an album like Left Overture was panned. But as we always say on Two Twins an album, who the hell cares what the critics say? Because they don't know what they're talking about anyway. So T, let's take a run around. Let's start with you, T. What are three albums that you have been enjoying these last couple of weeks? Well, I uh, I got to admit, I'm a, on a little bit of an ABBA kick because of the Peloton. There's this there's this ABBA ride that I that I'm just loving, just loving it. Turns out that ABBA is really good to ride a bike to. <laughs> Who would have thought? Um, they had a new album. I didn't even realize this. Like couple months ago their first album in like 40 years and uh it's called voyage i have no idea if it's good or not because you know i'm kind of i'm gonna revisit the hits you know first of all the gold album but i eventually want to see if abba still got it. i'm sure it's all poppy and it's very poppy you know yes, it, it sounds really modern like all that vintage feel that the original abba albums have yeah it's not quite there, but it, but it, you know, they're back. It's very, it's fascinating that they're back after 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is. Um, so anyway, probably won't like it based on your description, but Hey, you know, good for them. 
I mean, they got to be old. They got to be like 70 ish. Probably. They're oh, yeah, about. probably over. Yeah. If that. Yeah. 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 Um, so anyway, ABBA. And then uh, the well, band out of a- is there an album or just ABBA? Voyage. Voyage, the new album. Oh, so that is on your round and round. Yeah. Okay. 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 Uh, the Wombats have a new album. This is the Australian, uh, I don't know, sort of festival Rocky, I guess you would say, group that is quite good, actually. And it's called Fix Yourself, Not the World. And then uh, the third one, I'm going to go with a little uh, little band called XTC. That's, heard uh, of them. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're damn good. And that's uh one of their more renowned albums called English Settlement. So that is what is round and round for me. Who am I passing it to? Which one of you gents? Pass the baton next? to Bill Keith. Let's hear from him. Go for it, buddy. Uh the first one, and this is kind of in honor of the theme of Kansas today. I decided to do a progressive rock one. A group called Trifecta. Um, it's Whoa. got um Adam Holtzman is the keyboard player. Um, it's a trio, Adam Holtzman on keyboards. He's played with Steve Wilson and a bunch of different people. Some may remember Nick Beggs from his time. He was in a group called Kajagoogoo <laughs> back in the eighties. And then also oh, they did too shy. Right? Yeah. Shy, eye to eye. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then he was, I think for a short time, he was in an, uh, a UK group called Iona, kind of a progressive Celtic group. They put out an album as trifecta called fragments. And I think it's, if not all, it's mostly instrumental, and it's it's really good. Um, I mentioned the new one by Mellencamp, uh, John Mellencamp. It's called Strictly a One-Eyed Jack. I've only had one chance to listen to it uh, earlier this week, but really, really, really enjoyed it. And then the last one, <laughs> this is a, kind of a throwback to my youth, to the late 80s. Um, a band that came out with a couple albums then uh, just released a new album, a band called Giant. I don't know if you guys... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love Giant. Yeah, I'll see kind of, uh, you in my dreams. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, arena rock band. Me. Oh, yeah. They're great. They have a new album called Shifting Time on the Frontier Record label. And um, the only disappointing thing, the guitar player, Dan Huff, is only on one song. Um, he let the band kind of continue on without him because he's busy producing. He, I think he produces a lot of country music. It's, it's uh, you know, it's interesting. Musically, I mean, it's it's like right in that arena rock sweet spot. But as I was listening to it, walking around, I, I was looking at the pictures of the guys thinking they're probably in their mid 60s now or early 60s. Lyrically, it hasn't changed any, <laughs> any bit from that. It's all about girls that broke your heart, girls that you're uh, really into or uh, like doing your best, like pump up songs um, <laughs> and it hasn't, it hasn't moved beyond. I, I was like, lyrically, Ooh, this is, I mean, yeah. Okay. It takes me back to the eighties. It's nostalgic, but musically it's kind of fun. I mean, yeah, I had no idea style. those guys did a new album. That's super cool. I'm glad you Yeah, I think they did an album in like 2013 or 2014. And I didn't know they were coming out with a new one until I saw it at Dearborn music. And I was like, I got yeah. it. Good call. Absolutely. I'm going to check that out. Well, thanks, Bill. Great choices. Uh, for my number one, we are, uh, it's a tribute thing and it's 1977's Bad Out of Hell, which I immediately <sighs> listened to top to bottom the day that we lost meat. And uh, what an album, you know, just, it's like, it's almost so crazy that it's hard to connect with, but uh, it's amazing that that came out in the late seventies and was as commercially successful as it was. Of course, Jim Steinman deserves a lot of credit, but 
losing meatloaf yet another mu- musician lost we're just we talk about it on the podcast all the time we're going to continue to watch all of our heroes unfortunately leave the the earth and a, a good tribute this week to listen to bad out of hell a couple times top to bottom interestingly enough i've always hated paradise by the dashboard light and that continues to be my least favorite song on the album yet everybody loves it i, I can't figure it out i find the song incredibly annoying but i think the rest of the record is is it's something to behold. I think young people today should should check it out and, and and realize that there was a time where music like that could be really popular and really mainstream. Secondly, for me, would be uh, the Quest, the new album by Yes. This did not make my 2021 album of the year list, but now that I've gotten a little more into it, I, it maybe it should have. It's it's a very very good effort from Yes. It's produced by Steve Howe. The opening track, the Ice Bridge, is is the best thing they've done in a very long time it's not close to the edge or anything like that, but it's, it's really thoughtful songwriting, good composition. The album sounds wonderful. It's got a couple of things on it that should not be there, including this weird Beatles tribute song. But aside from that, it's a really solid album from this new incarnation of yes. And I've been really digging it. And lastly, I had no idea that they had a new album out. Yeah. It came out in 21, uh, sort of near the end of the year. I actually just got my copy recently because of course I shelled out the money for the ridiculous box set that comes with surround sound and vinyl and CD. And it comes with a lithograph and a pin and all t-shirt. Is there a t-shirt? No t-shirt in this one, unfortunately, but, uh, yeah, the quest by yes, it's worth checking out. And then my third choice is a solo record from Derek Sherinian, who's a, a really great keyboard artist. He played with oh, Dream yeah. Theater and Alice Cooper and several other bands. This is Inertia. This is from the late 90s. And the album really is, is notable because it features Steve Lukather on it on pretty much every song. And Steve Lukather just sounds incredible when you combine it with Derek Sherinian's keyboard work. And this is when Luke was sort of in that Toto, no Toto phase, and he was doing a lot of session work, and he sounds awesome on it. So. Yeah, he's not that good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. So inertia by right. Derek Sherinian. Yep. Wasn't right, Derek well, Sherinian in like uh, Jelly Jam or Platypus with Ty Tabor? He was in Platypus. Album. Yeah, he was in Platypus, yeah. and then when they became the Jelly Jam, one of the changes was Derek Sherinian was was no longer in it. Notoriously, he's difficult to work with, but he's really, really good. But that platter, the first two Platypus albums. Derek is on there and he, and he's wonderful. I mean, those, and those are great records. I feel like the weak link in this prog nerd triangle right now. <laughs> I feel like the third wheel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bill and I definitely connect on a lot of prog nerd levels for sure. So well, I want you to know as you I, I hardly paid attention to your round and round because I was purchasing shifting time by giant uh, oh, nice. on compact disc. So yeah. Nice. Bill, I'm glad you, you mentioned that. Nice. Excellent. Very productive round and round then, especially for the That's right. Giant. That's right. It, let's get into Leftoverture and um, we'll of course do some nerdy deets here. I, I want to make sure that we cover the importance that free beer had on the band Kansas. <laughs> hmm. And we will get into that when we roll the nerdy deets. Let's do it to you. You want some nerdy deets? Yeah! You want some nerdy deets? Left Overture was released on October 21st of 1976, sort of right in the heart of just 70s rock. This was actually the fourth album from Kansas. Probably a lot of people out there assumed it was their first album because it really was the first one to achieve any 
real height of mainstream success. The, the first three albums are, as Bill mentioned earlier, really legendary. They're beloved, but didn't have hits on them. Well, Leftover Tour changed that, of course, with the opening track that became, you know, sort of a notable song. Uh, the album was released on Kirshner Records. So where does the free beer come in? Well, really, the only reason Kansas got a record deal was because, uh, you know, they had come from Topeka, Kansas, which actually had kind of a garage rock music scene going on there. And they got the attention of Kirshner Records, of course, run by Don Kirshner, this force in 1970s music. And they showed interest and said they were going to come see the band play. So the band organized this, this show that a place that was way larger than they were ready for. And they advertised the show, not by saying, come see Kansas, but come here because there's free beer. And 1,500 people ended up showing up. There were lines outside the door. So when the Kirshner representatives showed up, they saw these lines and they saw this crowd who was losing their minds at every song, but they were only losing their minds because they were all hammered off of the free beer. And Phil Earhart, he tells this story wonderfully. Uh, you know, basically, free beer is the reason why we all know the band Kansas. So, yeah. you know, cheers to free beer. Genius marketing. It was genius marketing, it's, you know, because nobody else would have. I mean, they, they might have had 50 people there if they wouldn't have advertised the free beer. So, <laughs> so there you go. That's the role that free beer has in the development of Kansas. Speaking of the development, the lineup, this is sort of considered the classic lineup. Steve Walsh on lead vocals and background vocals also did some organ, piano, you know, keyboard handstands, of course. Carrie Livgren, who not only is the MVP of this album, but, you know, really the, the guiding force, I would say, of Kansas creatively on guitar, piano, all sorts of other synthesizers, things like that. Robbie Steinhardt bringing the most unique part of Kansas and the thing that most people recognize, which is the violin. And, and Robbie Steinhardt, such a key player in the band to bring that sound. You know, Jethro Tull had the flute thing going on. Kansas really brought the violin into a rock band context and made it really, really popular and, and really mainstream. Rich Williams on electric and acoustic guitars. That is Rich Williams, that's the eye patch guy? Yeah, he's, he's still, him and Phil, the only two original members still in the group. That's right. Exactly. Dave Hope on bass guitar has a lot of good performances on this album and Phil Earhart, the, the true underrated part of Kansas, not just musically, but founding member. And Bill, I would say at this point, the guy that's really kept the machine going, you know, yeah, he's he is, the manager. He, he yeah, yeah. manages the day-to-day -day operations of the band and, and uh, directs a lot of their kind of their vision and direction. The first single was a little song called carry on wayward son. This, of course, went on to take Kansas to, you know, amazing heights of success, leading Left Overture to go five times platinum. What's on my mind was released as a second single. We'll get to that in the track by track, but uh, it didn't even come close to, to the heights that carry on Wayward Son, a song that's still played regularly on classic rock radio and, and, and still finds an audience today for sure. So obviously this album, you know, we'll talk about it top to bottom in the album context, but Carry On Wavered Son, just an incredibly important part of the Kansas story and, of course, of Left Overture, the album. The, the band would go on to release uh, Point of No Return, which continued the success. And then it was sort of a downward slide commercially because, you know, there were changes in the band, lineup changes. Carrie Livgren would seemingly bounce back and forth. Bill, it's, it's unquestionable that you would say that Left Overture and Point of No Return are the band's commercial pinnacle, right? Yeah, I would, I would definitely say so. I mean, they had some other songs that hit the charts, but 
nothing like those first two albums. So T, I, I'm very much looking forward to the Wonder Stories segment. I have a couple guiding questions for you. And then, of course, we'll hear how Bill Keith got into the band Kansas. So why don't we get into our Kansas stories with the Wonder Stories? Let's go. So T, I have to tell you that, you know, it, it almost dawned on me, like, in the last 24 hours that... You know, Kansas is a very important word to you, as we've talked about. You're a Kansas Jayhawk graduate. Yeah. And I never really put together like, oh, this band, like, I wonder if there's any connection with T between his love for the state of Kansas. And by the way, congratulations on your Chiefs. That's a wonderful thing. Getting, gaining on it. <laughs> gaining on it. 13 seconds. Not too bad. Yeah, that was crazy. Eh? That was. It was ridiculous. But uh, yeah, I wonder if the just the role of Kansas being from kansas i know you have a little experience with topeka kansas where the band hails from but give us your wonder story man not a lot i mean i you know i i my girlfriend late in college was from topeka and i remember sort of being like you know the band kansas is like from your hometown and her like having to pretend like that was cool you know um (laughs) but not, not you know not a lot other than that but you know, the Pine Knob Music Theater, which they just now shifted back to calling the Pine Knob Music Theater Thank instead God. of, you know, the, the corporate branding, man, you know, bro, we're getting rid of that. We're going back to the back to the roots uh, of a venue that was very important to us. And, you know, I, I think our first time ever there was it, it was certainly a Barry Manilow concert, probably in like 1986 or something. And so we were six. We did Manila. Um, we did like, I remember Mr. Mr. You know, our mom took us to that when we were. Yeah. Know, and then I got yeah. a bloody nose and we had to go home. I remember <laughs> right, that. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we were on the lawn for that, but those were like, the, <laughs> yeah, was that Mr. Mr. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Great band. Yeah. They were great. Um, I don't know if they played their instruments actually on stage, but they were great. But um, so there was like this first phase of pine up for us, which we were really young. We were really little and I hardly remember. Then there was this second phase, which really kicked off with this, this Kansas concert. In fact, I called our dad earlier today and, and I, I was, I told him what we're doing tonight and, you know, we were laughing and, and, and both kind of remember that that was one of the first ventures to Pine Knob, which preceded many years thereafter of many shows, you know, it actually was the first it was, yep, it was the first. And and I remember, you know, it was kind of like, okay, we have these, you know, we got like season tickets basically. Um, and I remember it was like, well, you know, it was early in the season that year and we were, God, we had to be like 12 or 13 maybe. And this band Kansas was playing and it was like, all right, well, I know Boston and I know, uh, Chicago, Chicago. Right. So it was like, okay, but I, Kansas, I didn't know there was a band named after that. So. Uh, but it was like, and, and I remember, you know, our dad wasn't like super into them or anything, but he was kind of like, yeah, you know, they play rock and whatever. And we were like, all right, cool. I mean, and, and at that time, just going to a show, like we would have gone to see anything. And we, we certainly did as the years went on at Pine Knob. We, you know, we went and saw uh, Yanni. We went and saw Kenny Loggins. We saw the turtles. And then of course we saw a bunch of other cool stuff, but it was like, if there was a show, we were going, you know, uh, for the most part, unless it was something really bad. 
so I was like, all right, let's go see this Kansas band. And, and I remember, you know, you gotta remember at this time, it was like, this was grunge was really kicking in. It was like Nirvana, Nevermind and Pearl Jam 10 and, you know, sort of the onset of, of some of this. I mean, it was a totally different scene that, that was really starting. It was kind of in its infancy, but we were certainly into it. And we knew that this, these guys were kind of like old at the time, sort of old rockers. But I remember sitting there and it was like, this guy comes out with like a violin, you know, like this long hair. And and it was like, okay. And then this like dude with an eye patch comes out. And then like the singer looked like, like Richard Simmons, you know, he had this little Steve Walsh had this (laughs) stringy little tank top on and he was running around with his like tight, he had those tight (laughs) tights on. And it was like, what the hell? Like it was a Motley crew. It was like, what are these guys? Like, this is so bizarre. And, you know, and it was like cool, but it was also weird at that time. It was like this violin guy stepping up to the middle of the stage and playing these solos and these leads. And like, it was cool, but it was also kind of goofy at the time. And, but I remember people were really excited. It was like, you could tell that the people up front were really into it. And so it was like this kind of squirrely collection of dudes, but it was cool and different. I remember early in the set, they, as they usually do, they played point and no return. And I thought I'd never heard this song before. I thought that they were, you know, they're saying how long in the course, but I thought they were saying, hello, hello, hello. And I was like, that's so cheesy. Like they're coming out in their first song. They're like, hello to the audience. You know, I, I was like, but then I found out they weren't saying that. And I was like, oh, okay, never mind. The show also is something I remember distinctly. We went to the merchandise table, of course. That was always a big deal for us. And I bought the Live at the Whiskey CD that they were selling at the show. And I'll tell you, I played the hell out of that over the years. And even even still, I mean, I, I love that performance it's 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 they're really uh they're really playing hard at that time and and rich had kind of taken over you know they actually bring carrie livgren up to play dust in the wind i believe uh, during that performance but for the most part it's rich and they had really dialed it up around that time in terms of phil really playing hard rich really playing hard sort of high gain guitar it sounded great and I didn't know until like fairly recently how sort of controversial that live at the whiskey thing was for Kansas fans and how it was like this, like basically this source of embarrassment for the band. They, they apparently they funded this themselves and they shot it instead of using film, they shot it with videotape. And I guess they had to do a certain lighting to where like the band looked like shit and they were like all sweaty and like, you know, and, and Steve Walsh was getting into some, some substance abuse at this time and his vocals were messed up. They actually had to edit them and overdub them for the, for the album. So I guess it was this like disaster sort of thing in terms of the video presentation. Um, I always thought it was a really cool performance. So it was like unbeknownst to me that this was like this, uh, kind of this live at the whiskey thing ended up being not a great moment for the band. But for me, it was something, I mean, they, they, they come out and they do this really cool intro where they play some howling at the moon and, and then they play uh point of no return. And then this really cool upbeat rock version of paradox. 
I, I, I just love it. I, that's what, so it's one of those CDs. It was cool. Cause I bought it at the show, have listened to it a ton over the years. And, you know, I was surprised to learn that like the band hates it. Cause I always thought it was pretty sweet, but <laughs> so yeah, that, that, the show, that first show, uh, in sort of the sort of surprise element of what these guys were getting into them over the years. And then of course, later, I mean, it took me a while, long time to sort of go back and revisit their studio albums, including tonight's and sort of piece together how important some of these, uh, some of this work was to Prague and to this sort of stepped up musicianship that we started to see around this time period. And it's a very unheralded band. It's a very underappreciated band uh, and, and probably not in the same sentences as a lot of bands that should be. But it'll be fun to re- revisit this, uh, certainly with you, Nub, but, but of course, with you, Bill, with your deep knowledge of these guys, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking through it. Sure. And I definitely want to kick the bill. I, I would just say my wonder story is very similar to that because it wasn't the first time I ever heard Kansas, but it was like, you know, it was such a big deal. And we were, you know, like you said, we were 12 years old and I was already getting into progressive rock, but I didn't realize Kansas was going to be a full on prog band. And so I was just loving it. It was like, Oh, this is the greatest thing ever. T do you remember uh, the lineup was Dave Mason Marshall Tucker band. And remember who played right before Kansas, Steve Morse band. Oh, that's right. And I was like, Oh, this guy is incredible. And, and, and yeah. I, Billy, I know you're familiar with Steve Morse. Of course, Steve Morse eventually, you know, he became a member of Kansas. Wasn't he playing a Steinberger? Oh, there? I think he had a Steinberger. At I think he was. Yeah. But yeah. he just shredded. I remember. And I think Rod Morgenstein was on drums. So I was already kind of fired up after that set. And then, yeah, I, I was blown away by Kansas. And this really started a love for the band that has lasted to today. I haven't gotten into every, you know, segment of the band's career. There's some holes, you know, some of the eighties stuff I'm not as into, but in terms of those first four or five albums, and then recently the last couple I've, I've loved, but yeah, T it all comes back to that night at, at Pine Dot music theater. It really does. That was, a, that was really our, our core introduction to Kansas. And to your point, our dad took us and he was not really a big fan of them. He had just gotten the season tickets and he was like, well, let's go to this one. And uh, good thing you did. So, yeah. so, Bill, let's let's hear your Kansas Wonders story. What's your background with Left Overture, and 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 how, as how did you get into Kansas so passionately? Well, you you probably saw them in concert before I ever. I didn't, I don't think I saw them till late nineties, early two thousands. Hmm. I saw them when they came to DTE with um, Asia, the John Payne version of Asia opening for them. My my first introduction to them was in the early eighties. I'm sure I had probably by then I had heard Dust in the Wind and Carry On, The Wayward Son. I think at that time I wasn't super, I wasn't huge into rock. I was kind of like in the top 40, late 70s, early 80s. I would get those like blue Kmart cassettes and just pop them into the radio and record like songs off the radio so that I could listen to them. And of course, I mean, you're hearing Pat Benatar, Men at Work, all that stuff. But somehow I read a review of Kansas's album, uh, Vinyl Confessions, and was intrigued by it. And so I went out. That was the first, I think, one of the first vinyl records, if not the first, that I bought. Hey, Bill, what um, stations were you? Did you grow up in Michigan? Yeah, Detroit area. I listened. I could tell from your, uh, you know, Michigander accent that you probably did. But what were your... uh, what were your go-to stations? Because we've talked about Detroit radio a little bit on the on the po- on the old podcast here. I think we listened a lot to ninety six three. Um, was probably HYT at the time. Okay. Um, and so whatever or whatever 
version of it it was at the time, but playing top 40 songs. As a kid, I, I mean, I, I grew up going to church a lot, so I listened to a lot of Christian radio stations as a kid. And I think that may have been probably some of the introduction to Kansas or the intrigue with Kansas because Kerry Livgren all throughout there, I mean, you even go back to their earliest albums, he's kind of on some kind of spiritual quest. Yeah. Through all kinds of like through Eastern religions and probably some kind of Indian spirituality at times because you see that pop up in their music. And yeah, yeah. And, uh, eventually he became intrigued by Christianity or, or came back to it. And that intrigued me because it was showing up in some of their songwriting. Um, and so I picked up Vinyl Confessions and that was the first album that Steve Walsh was not on. And they had a new singer, John Elefante, and I absolutely loved his voice. You know, it's interesting, those two, that Vinyl Confessions and Drastic Measures, those were my first two albums that I bought by the band, Vinyl Confessions on vinyl and uh, Drastic Measures on cassette. I was trying to figure out when I bought Vinyl Conf- or when I bought Left Overture, and I've got the remastered version of it. This remastered version came out in 2000. I think 2001, at least the first one or somewhere of, around there. Yeah, it was early 2000s. Yeah, when this one, yeah, I, it was some point after that that I bought it. Um, I bought it at like one of the used record stores up at Michigan State, but I didn't listen to it a lot. I mean, I had their best of, so I knew some of the songs from it. I, and I've kind of just kept up with them since then. If they put out an album, like when they put out Freak of, Freaks of Nature in the 90s, um, and I've grown to love that album too. So. And, and I agree with I agree with you, T, about the the latest albums. I think their latest albums. I mean, they're wow. These bands that you know had their oh, I think they're done soon, like eight times, and just keep finding a way. I mean, we've talked about a bunch of them here that just keep finding a way to plow through and have these multi-decade careers, and in some cases, actually find ways to get more refined and some would argue get even better is really impressive. I I think it goes a bit unheralded with some of these guys and not just going out every summer and playing the greatest hits because, you know, there are plenty that do that and, and that's fine, but it's not what these guys have done. They've continued to create and evolve and tighten up and it's impressive. And yeah, they're, they're sort of have, have had nine lives. It seems like I, I remember I mean, shoot, that going back to when we saw them and I think it was 92 or 93, a lot of people probably thought that without Steve Walsh, it was going to be tough for the band, you know, or without Carrie. And, you know, I mean, they just always seem to find a way to scratch and claw and, you know, find their way through. And you've seen a lot of, you've seen a lot of Midwest, you know, proggy type bands um, have careers like that. You know, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I would agree. Kansas is one of those bands that I, that I love because you get into them. There's just this gigantic catalog, but within that there's different bands, you know, it's like Genesis and yes. I mean, there's different yeses within their three, four decades of creating albums. There's different Genesis lineups and sounds. And that's one thing about Kansas to your point, Bill, vinyl confession sounds nothing like song for America. But it's the no. same band and you can get into it and feel like you're, you're following this journey of the band journeys the same way of the band from start to finish. And to your point T, when a band can keep getting better and keep pushing themselves creatively, that's what you want to see. So, man, I can't wait to drop the needle. I think we all know what we're about to hear when we drop the needle on track one, but T, are you ready to drop the needle on uh, left overture? Let's go boys. Let's do it. When the drum beats go like this 
Perhaps other than that song by Queen, you know, that one song, the really long one, maybe the most famous example of a hit song starting acapella. And that is track one and Kansas's biggest hit, Carry On Wayward Son. Carry on my wayward son, there'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest, don't you cry no more. Maybe the most famous example of a splat intro on the drums. Uh, this song has the, the, the almost cliched story that it was the last song written for the album and was never supposed to be on it. And Carrie Livgren had been working on it. And literally the band describes that they were like putting their instruments away in the studio. And Carrie was like, Hey, I've got this thing I've been working on. And of course it becomes the band's biggest hit. It just seems like a story I'm calling is- total bullshit on that, by the way, <laughs> I, I, I think that's become like the cool thing to say. It's like, yeah, I wrote that song in 15 seconds while I was like, on the toilet, I, you know, it's like there just seemed to every, you know, there's got to be more to some of these songs than that, you know. In his autobiography, he was saying that they were rehearsing in Topeka, like at some storefront. They had pretty much rehearsed the album as it was going to be, and were packing up to head to Louisiana where they were going to record. And he said, "Well, you know, I've got this one other song," and he didn't really show it to the band until they got to Louisiana, and voila. There it was, um, which without without that song on the album, uh, sadly, I mean, there's other great songs on the album, but it it does not sell millions of albums. There, there's complex instrumentation, but it's catchy. I mean, do 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 do. That's a prog line, but it's also really catchy. You can sort of hum along to it. Well, it, well, and it uses that really famous rock. It's that Jimi Hendrix chord that open. Which you hear a lot in rock and blues, et cetera, but it's used perfectly for that ring out right into the ba do 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 da do da. I mean, there's just some great moves throughout this tune. It's, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> the fact that Carrie was sitting on this is funny because it's like, this seems like one of those where even when you write it, it's like, oh yeah, this thing's gold. Yeah, everything's kind of clicking on it, you know, rhythm section wise. It's yeah. just it's so cohesive, but so adventurous. And one of the common themes of Left Overture, I mean, Steve Walsh singing his ass off. He, he never sounded this good again on record, maybe other than this in Point of No Return, but just letting it rip in an American band playing prog rock, which was not the norm. And it was one of the biases against Kansas was that they were this, these Americans who were playing this British music, but uh, went on to be a huge hit and is still you know, one of the most famous rock songs of the last century, I would say. Well, it was a testament, I think, to the record companies at the time that they, because I think it was a slow, eventually got to number 11 on the charts, but it was kind of a slow climb. And I had never known that opening line of the song kind of picks up on, from their previous album, Mask, the last song, The Pinnacle, somewhere one near the end, ending of it, there's a line near the ending that, that kind of transitions into the same, or into a similar line at the beginning of Carry on Wayward Son. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And I mean, this, this is their fourth album. They were under a lot of pressure, even on Mask, to get some kind of hit. And I think they were feeling it even more with this album. Steve Walsh was having writer's block and um, they needed Carrie to write a bunch of songs. And 
Steve Walsh was having writer's block. Cocaine's a hell of a drug, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, It's so prog to do a theme from the last song of one album into the first song of the next album. How prog is that? I love it. It's a hit on Kansas's terms. And it also shows off their chops in, in an amazing way. And that'll be a reoccurring theme as we go. Second song doesn't exactly show chops, but really became a beloved song in the Kansas catalog and certainly in live performance. And that is track to the wall. We're not doing a Kansas top five. It would be, we should have done that, but you know, we got so many other things to talk about. This would be in my Kansas top five. I've always loved the wall. I remember when they played it at the show we were at, see, it really stood out. It seems like they love playing this song live, right? I mean, it shows up pretty much yeah. in every performance. It does seem like it. a lot of raw emotion to this song. And uh, I think Robbie Steinert's violin really shines through. They did a nice job in the mix of this song because there's a lot of textures going on, but the violin seems to pop really well through it as does Phil Earhart's drums. You heard that drum fill, which, you know, he's such an underrated drummer. Yeah. I, I, I was listening to it tonight as I was going out on a walk before we uh, connected and it starts out kind of slow, but boy, it really builds into that majestic kind of sound. And uh, yeah, it definitely wasn't going to be a radio hit. Um, I think it's a little bit too progressive, but um, a really cool song and, and, and you're right. Great live. And, and as you said, I mean, Steve Walsh delivering the vocals, like he doesn't get the notoriety. I mean, he was, at least in my opinion, a vocalist vocalist. I mean, he could just deliver it. Yeah, this is, I think this is his best vocal on the album. I really like the positioning of track two. You know, it would have been really easy to kind of go with what's on my mind or, or go with the opus insert or something that sort of sets the commercial tone coming off of Carry On Wayward Son. And obviously you started to see this a little bit at this time where you kind of put your opener in one and then your hit for two. I like the way, and I think it presents Left Overture correctly to instead of do what may have been expected, which is start off with like the rocker and then try to like keep the party going with track two. So you have that really stiff side A. I like that they put the wall here because I think it sets up the, the sort of storyline of this album. And, and I don't think the entire thing is necessarily a concept, but there are certainly concepts within, especially when we get to the opus, both musically and in some cases lyrically. And I think it was really smart and artistic to put the wall second instead of something that probably would have made more commercial sense, which I think is part of what leads to the authenticity and appreciation of Left Overture as not just a collection of a bunch of songs that ended up being hits, but you can tell that they were trying to show a progression and, and sort of make a statement through the sequencing. And I like that about the wall as a uh, track too. That's a great take to you. That's really good. And speaking of commercial uh, attempts, I think that brings us into track three, the second single, which is what's on my mind. I mean, this is the hit, you know, it's amazing that Carry On became the smash. This is the song clearly that was 
I'm not saying they wrote it to be a hit, but I'm sure running through their minds was let's make something a little catchy. I mean, everything Walsh is singing there is catchy. I love when he hits a long hug. I mean, he just, everything is like just on the screws, but it's amazing that this tanked, this sort of bombed as a single and carrying wayward sun, which is some much more progressive and much more kind of up and down, you know, from a rhythmic perspective became the radio hit. But uh, yeah, when I first was listening to this, if I didn't know Carrie wrote most of this album, I would have never assumed this was a Carrie Livgren song. I would have assumed this was a Steve Walsh song. It had the swagger of a Steve Walsh song. They sometimes got described as boogie rock, kind of. Uh, I mean, that it was, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, if they didn't have Carrie on on this album, that would have been single number one, undoubtedly. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> the most sort of AOR boogie rocks an interesting term yeah kind of which a lot of that was sort of expected at that time and sort of easy at that time so i i think it's a a sort of a lower point on the record um just because it sounds whereas the rest of the album sounds very creative and and like it has purpose of sort of a greater narrative musically i think this one is kind of like the it it is sort of the boogie rock, the token boogie rock song, uh, there in track three. So not not my favorite moment, but uh, it's it works. It's of its time, and it definitely leads to. It's certainly a diverse album, and I think that in some ways that's kind of a cool thing here on track three. But I think it's one of the lower points. Let's get our calculators out, or abacus, or whatever Ugh. method you like. This one's been driving me nuts all week. <laughs> This is for the musicians out there, and it is Miracles Out of Nowhere, Trek 4. So Bill T calls me yesterday on the phone. And, you know, we're past pleasantries. We don't need to ask each other how we're doing or, you know, how their day's going. I pick up the phone. Hey, T. And the, the very first thing he says is, dude, what's the count of the middle section of Miracles Out of Nowhere? <laughs> and <laughs> in musician speak, that basically means like, what time are they playing in? And how do you make sense of this? Well, and he's a drummer. So I'm like, all right. I've, I mean, I was trying to figure it out. I got there. Were, there's a group of sevens. Then there's like a seven and then a nine and then like a 13, then back to a nine. I mean, it's crazy. It's super cool, but yeah, I'm still, I'm still working that one out. It's Prague. It's <laughs> always in seven. All right. Just Prague is always in seven. Yeah. What's, what's, you know, aside from being in my opinion, probably the best track on the album, what stands out about it is uh lead vocals, not by Steve Walsh by Robbie Steinart. I think Walsh does sort of the echoes in the chorus, some of that like call and response thing that's going on. Bill, you could confirm that. It sure sounds like Steve Walsh's voice, but I know Robbie's singing lead on a majority of the song, of course, with a lot of other vocal harmonies. But, you know, I think the song captures, you know, a lot of, you know, depth. It's got great rises and nice falls. I mean, it, it, but that middle section too, that's where it's probably the most prog moment on the whole album. I've always loved Miracles Out of Nowhere. I think it's a great track. What do you think of it, Bill? Yeah, it's a great song for a live performance. I mean, it's like when you see them live, it's, it's, it's the jam. I mean, they, they really, I mean, there's a lot of songs that they have that can kind of fit that role, but that song, that song really kicks it. So that's the end of the first side. That's a pretty 
good side of, <laughs> of an album when you think about it. I mean, four tracks, it never, ever gets boring. I wouldn't say there's any low points on side one. And you flip it over. And what's interesting, Bill, you talked about having this album on CD. Miracles Out of Nowhere flows so well into Opus Insert. But back in the day, on the original album, you had to flip the record over to get to it. So um, it's, it's great continuity between side one and side two. And it continues with track five, which is Opus Insert. Dave Hope is killing it on this song on bass. I love the bass line. You got to give Phil a lot of credit too, because it's just that rhythm section concept and great keyboard tones. Just the whole thing works and it's upbeat. It's a little poppy Walsh is singing that higher register that people have come to know and love from him. So yeah, they go up a sensor really just continues. Couldn't, couldn't they have given it a different name? I mean, this is like, this is like a hit, right? This is like a classic part of the album. Many would consider why is it called opus insert yeah you overlook it because of that title right right i exactly i i thought it was going to be some like whimsical instrumental that sort of is some prelude to magnum opus and then it's like oh i know i actually knew this song. i think this song got some radio play but why'd they call it opus insert is it part of the narrative or something or i don't know i didn't listen to it that closely i have to listen to it more i love that in, in, introduction that keyboard yeah uh, part yeah i don't know if it's multiple keyboards overlaid each other or what but it's it was really cool it's an awesome track i just i just don't understand the title <laughs> yeah i i think it's like a very commercial uh tune but um it is and and all carrie livgren i mean all these songs are are him i mean walsh did he co-wrote the wall i think he had some lyrical input on that and the next song was one of the co-writes between Carrie and Steve Walsh. But I mean, th- this is, this is like all Carrie Livgren's vision coming to life and you really can hear it. And he, he's such a talented, again, we keep using words like underrated and overlooked and all those things that it, it, it just really applies to this for sure. So, you know, again, track five, you're just cooking. Yeah. This is the part of the album where, you know, things might start to get a little shaky in my opinion, but uh, track six questions of my childhood. What do you guys think? Questions of my childhood. T, what do you got? I think it's okay. It's this one is probably where it gets a little bit more predictable, right? I mean, it's you know you you kind of pop this one on and it's like, okay, this is like a seventies uh, classic rock proggy band, and so you know a little bit. I mean, there's some cool piano work, and you know it kind of chugs along nicely and has a nice spirit to it, but there's nothing terribly memorable about it. There's some challenging vocals here. And and I think that, um, this one in particular, you know, really probably stretched him a bit as far as range and as far as cadence. So I think it's a really cool vocal. 
I agree with you, Nub. The, the, this one in the track that sort of follows it, maybe a little bit of a lull prior to the opus, which obviously closes it out in fairly good form. Not a huge fan of when Kansas gets really up tempo. And I know this song does yeah. a lot of cut time and things like that. I do love, and Bill, you'll know this one, No One Together. I, I think that's on yeah. Audio Visions. That to me is a great example of Kansas rocking out and getting up tempo, but still with that kind of, you know, the, the mm-hmm. almost like the gospel like chorus. Yeah. Um, but it's, to me, it works on that track a lot better than it works on uh, Questions of My Childhood for sure. So we're, yeah, we're chugging along here almost near the end of the album. You got to remember one vinyl record. It's only a 43 minute album. It's not that long, but um, yeah, let's continue it on with Cheyenne Anthem, track seven. In the ground our bodies lay, you will stay. had high hopes for this song and just never really connected. I, I do like the classical influence of some of the melodies. You just kind of heard it near the end of that clip there. I mean, they do start to do some interesting things within it, but uh, it, to me, this song it has uh, it's boxed in. It just doesn't, it never really explodes into a, you know, maybe it's just the vocal aspect of it. It just seems a little more contained. It, it definitely has his fascination as a writer with the American Indians and it pops up on other, songs that they've done um so that's kind of cool yeah it's got some cool moves maybe a little a few too many moves it seems patchworky it's like okay we got these like five sections and none of them particularly have a beginning middle and end point so let's just mash them all together and then put the word anthem on it and it'll work Uh, (laughs) (laughs) so uh, you know it's okay it's uh, you know i think they probably could have chopped this up into two sections or maybe three sections, flushed them out a little bit to your point nub and given it a little bit more direction. And, and Hey, sometimes this happened with Prague, right? Where it's like, you know, eh, we got these like three or four things that aren't really cohesive, but let's just jam them together. And, you know, Oh, that happens. You mean like on the next, (laughs) on the next track? (laughs) Well, you know, um, it almost got there, but not quite on Cheyenne Anthem. It, it, you know, you might use that exact description for the way the album closes. So they, you know, Kansas, which was always sort of a rather humble outfit as a band to, to call something magnum opus is, you know, if it's not tongue in cheek, then it's quite the statement. And uh, it's the long piece on the album. It's got five, actually six different sections. It had to be tongue in cheek, right? I mean, even left overtures, kind of a tongue in cheeky play on words, right? So for sure, for sure. And, and just looking at the titles for each section. Titles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the album cover, I mean there there definitely had to be some uh poking fun at whimsicalness a little bit here. For sure. So I, I don't know which clip you chose to. I'm I'm guessing which one you chose. Well, I chose I chose four. Um, because I mean, so it's in what is it in six parts? So, um, yeah, talk about it a little bit, then play let's another. Yeah, let's hear your first bit from uh, Magnum Opus. And don't you believe it's true? Well, music is all for you. It's really all we got to share. Because rocking and rolling, it's 
So I don't know how it breaks down. I'm guessing that's Man Overboard, maybe. I know that Howling at the Moon. Or well, actually, that's, Howling that's the moon, Howling at the Moon. Yeah, because right. at the actually the live at the Whiskey uh, performance that I referenced earlier, and when we saw them at uh, Pine Knob, they would play just that piece. Usually, usually as part of their sort of intro, they would uh, just play Howling at the Moon, which is that one we just. That's right. In, in the instrumental intro to that, that to, that to me is an iconic Kansas melody, the, the Howling at the Moon, kind of that, that what they used for the intro and the live at the whiskey bit. I guess you're right. It does. It, it, it drops. And then Walsh sings that actually is one of the lines. So. But this is probably the most beloved part of Magnum Opus, I would say. It's certainly the, the bit that the band continued to play live well into the 90s. Uh, but let's hear the next clip, too. Yeah, baby. Getting now crazy. We, Getting crazy now. now. we are talking. Bill too proggy for you? That's, you that's Magnum right there. Yeah. Come on, man. They, they use the right word, don't you think? Exactly. Fun with keyboards. Yeah. Or synthesizers or... All the above. I love that section, Anything actually. with keys on it. Yeah, that, that's easily my favorite section of the whole piece. Maybe the Howling at the Moon, the, the beginning of it, but... Yeah, that that's really experimental. You know, it, you can it, it, you could get the vibe that all the guys are just playing different keyboards. You know, just like hammering away at them. I like the experimental aspect of that section for sure. Doesn't Magnum Opus feel like it's like twenty minutes long, but it's actually only eight? Yes. So that that's you one know? of my complaints of it. That's that's one of the things about it. It actually goes by way too quickly. And I would have loved to see this stretched out to more of like a fifteen minute, close to the edge sort of deal. You know. Well, I took two more pieces if you want them. Yeah, let's hear them. All right. And now Carrie starts to shred. Hey, Bill, in your your knowledge, you know, when you you read Carrie's autobiography and things like that. Do you know anything about how this piece came together? Was this just a bunch of different bits that they threw together or was, what were they trying to do here? Do you know? No, I'd have to look, look, I'm not sure if he comments on that. Um, I do notice that each of the band members have a hand in the songwriting or at least in the songwriting credits. I have a feeling it was a song that Carrie brought and then probably the other members helped make changes and refined and, and uh, each had their input on. So I don't know if you guys like the, I assume you do, the Leftover Turn Beyond, uh, which just came out a couple of years ago, I think, right? The live performance of this top to bottom. And the magnum opus is pretty sweet. <laughs> you know, it really, they do a really nice job of of sort of modernizing and, and recreating this live, particularly some of these sections toward the end. I think it, I think it really works. You're right, T. It's a little more of a down-to-earth version of it. It's a little more tangible. You you can really feel the transitions and yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's a good way to to experience Magnum Opus. So let's hear the last clip. I'm sure it's the way it ends. Yeah. 
ah. the, the ultimate prog move, go back to the beginning, right? Yeah. It's bookended with that, with that progression, which, which is very cool. Very, you know, Bill used the right word earlier, majestic, I think. And a uh, cool way to close out the record. It's a powerful melody. It is. That's, that's, that's why, why I think it's up there with kind of that iconic quintessential Kansas sound, even though it's just kind of a intro and an outro to this particular work. So Magnum Opus closes. Did this album matter? T, let's start with you. Did Left Overture matter? You know, it, it, it probably should have a bit more. I, I do think that over time it's generated more respect was very pleased to, you know, to see them go out and tour this and play it start to finish. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a good one to do that, right? You can come out in the first set, you know, get clear some hits out of the way, come out in the second set, kick it off with carry on and play the remainder of the album. And I think that that helped give it a bit more notoriety, raise the profile of it a little bit. Cause it, it does get sort of lost in the shuffle. This was a very hot time period for bands of this genre. And even with Kansas being a bit more on the proggy side than some of the other quote unquote classic rock bands of that time, there's certainly an element of left overture that was unheralded to much of the mainstream and maybe scoffed at by some hardcore prog types. But I do think over time it has increased its profile as one of the sort of more important prog rock records in the catalog. I think it's their best for sure. And I really like what they did on Leftover Turn Beyond. So it's kind of like you can listen to this and get sort of the original raw studio element of it. And then listening to the, you know, one from a couple of years ago live with the newer lineup and with the different voice is a really neat way to rediscover it and revisit it. So um, I think it's increasing in its element of does it matter more and more over the years, which is a good thing. And hey, with some bands and some records, that's the way it rolls. And, and that's the way it sort of makes more slow and steady, more sustainable progress over time. And so for that, I, I think it, it, it matters a little, probably should a bit more, but I think it's increasing over time and hopefully will continue to increase in one that gets looked at as one of the better um, collections of a sort of classic rock band, or in this case, very much so earning the title of one of the better progressive rock bands uh, during this time period. What do you think, Bill? Definitely their biggest album. And, and, and critically, I think I saw a list of the top 100 Prague albums of all time, and it was like at number 70, somewhere in the 70s. And so I was glad to see that it got the mention and got a little bit of notoriety. They definitely would have benefited if they would have had another hit or two off of this album. Um, I think it would have set them up for being maybe more highly regarded. I remember watching the um, the documentary that they did in the last bunch of years, Miracles Out of Nowhere. And Steve Walsh talked about how Carrie was definitely the songwriter for the group. And I thought it, I mean, I thought it was a really it was a real humble moment for him, but I think he was underselling his own. In many ways, he was underselling his own songs. I mean, he, yeah, Carrie's got the songs that are probably the, the big ones that are identified, but Steve Walsh had great songs too. And I wish they would somehow, especially with the resurgence that they've had in the last several years, would get that kind of attention for the rock and roll hall of fame. Uh, but 
I mean, that, and that's not the end all and be all. Yeah. You look at some of the bands that have made it in and it's like, eh, this thing might not be that important after all, you know, but um, I think it matters because it's, it's a great example of a 1970s two album run. When you look, if you combine this with point and no return, yeah. I think there's some quintessential listening there. It It is one of the the biggest hits of the decade. Uh, like I said, I think in rock songs, carry on my wayward son is, is one of those ones that would stand out as one of the better songs of the century, just in terms of how could a song like that be a hit? And it's, it still lives today on, on classic rock radio. And uh, without that song, we probably are not talking about Kansas. I mean, they, they could have lost their deal if left overture hadn't have been a hit and uh, hadn't gained the much needed commercial success they, that they needed. The reason why I think it matters most is probably because I, I think Kansas is probably the best American prog band of the era. You know, most of the progressive rock was coming out of other parts of the world. And uh, it's, it's fun. They, they identify themselves still as a bar band. You know, they, they Phil refers to Kansas as just a, just a bar band. And they're clearly not. I mean, they were heavily influenced by a lot of music that was going on in other parts of the world. They absorbed that, made it an American version of Prague, and they were peerless for a long period of time, maybe until the late 80s, early 90s, when some other American bands started making Prague rock music. But they, they kind of stood alone as the American representation of Prague. For that reason, I think it lives on. And, and so I, I think it matters for that, if for any other reason, for sure. So let's take the final cut, see. So for the final cut, we will, of course, take Left Overture, and you assign it to one of four classifications, and that is, is it on the turntable, is it in the collection, is it collecting dust, or would you take Left Overture to the for sale bin, which is always a sad move. So, T, what are you doing with Left Overture? <laughs> I, I think this is in the collection. Um, important band, uh, unheralded band. And, you know, if you got to pick one of their records to own and spin, it's probably this. I mean, Point of, the, Point of No Return is great. I mean, there's, you know, great songs. They had other moments that were decent. I think their live stuff's been great. But in terms of their studio work and, and what album will probably have the most longevity beyond just the fact that it has a hit, um, their biggest hit, clearly, I think it's this. So you should own it. I'm not sure it's one that's like making this the rounds on the turntable terribly often, but it's, I think the most important record from a band that one should have something in their collection. And, and I think if you're going to have anything from Kansas have left overture and uh, an album, like I said, during doesn't matter that I think is increasing more and more over time in terms of being looked at as one of the better and more influential efforts out there for you prog nerds. So I'm going in the collection. What do you guys got? Love it. See, that's good analysis. Bill, where do you have leftover tour? You know, I was going to say it's on the turntable, um, but <laughs> I realized I pulled it out to get ready for our discussion and I hadn't listened to it all the way through in, in years, uh, which is sad uh, because it is such a great album. Um, so I, I would probably concur that it's in the collection. It's, it's, it's like a prominent one in my collection. And it's one that I want to take out more. And I, you know, I just pulled out the copy of that live uh, recording they did in the last few years of that tour uh, for Left Overture. And I need to uh, dig that out for another listen again. It's really good. Yeah. 
So you guys both have it in the collection. I'm going to put it on the turntable because I think it it's truly one of the great side ones of 70s rock music. I mean, it is so complete, one through four. And so you put it on the turntable, you listen to side, side one, it's as good as it gets. I would not move that needle at all in any moment of side one, uh, from Carry On Wayward Son to The Wall, and of course, all the way through uh, Miracles Out of Nowhere. It, it's, it's, I don't use this word a lot, it's pretty much a perfect side one. Side two, Opus Insert, I really like uh, Magnum Opus, it's a fun listen. The two in between are kind of eh, but still, I think it, it warrants on the turntable because of its completeness, that top to bottom thing. It's got a hit on it. It's got some of the most beloved live tracks that the band has continued to play. And uh, I think it's a, a really solid example of the importance of, of good album tracks. You know, it's most two would consider the non-hits, which is a lot of the album, are some of the best songs out of the Kansas catalog. So I've got Left Overture on the turntable. The key is none of us took it to the for sale bin, so that's a good thing. You know, that's always a good thing. All right. Well, T, let's wrap up this. Uh, you know, let- it's funny you say that. I actually think that, I, you know how Steve Wilson has done remixes? I think he did remixes of, did he do some Yes? He's done Yes. He's done Jethro Tull. He's, he's done he several. XTC actually mentioned earlier. He's done a couple yes, XTC he did, albums. He yeah. did some in the early Chicago too. To me, this album deserves having someone like him. Mm do a remix of it just just to hear it would bring new attention to an album that i think some rock fans need to be reminded of well a lot of people think steve wilson is buttoning up the forthcoming porcupine tree album but what he's really doing right now is listening to two twins in an album so steve (laughs) i want to hear bill keith has said that we need you to do a redux on um Left Overture. So let's get on that, buddy. And while we're at it, Stephen, you have made my year by reforming <laughs> Porcupine Tree. Literally. Another Can't show wait. that we'll be at, I think. Oh, of course. Can I, at least one. Cannot wait for that. All right, T. Well, let's bring the episode to a close with a little What's in Your Head? In your head. In your head. Yeah. Right. Dolores. Dolores. One, you, one time. One time. <laughs> Bill Keith, three songs that are ringing in your head lately. What do you got? Um, the first one is a Grand Rapids bass group, Patty Prashela and the Mayhaps. Um, the song is called Walking on My Hands. It's from uh, an album they put out either end of two, 2020, early 2021. I'm not sure. I was familiar with her as a singer. I think I saw a poster when I was in Grand Rapids. Um, a friend of mine mentioned their music and when I was at WHFR, I saw their CD and put it in and it just grabbed She is, it's, it's like almost like this on fire woman rock singer fronting cheap track, uh, at least on this song. I mean, it is a really cool song. Um, next would be new one from Blue Rodeo, um, the Canadian group. Ah, uh, yeah. Lost Together. One, yes. of my, one of my favorite all-time songs. Yeah, one of mine too. And in December, I didn't even know they were coming out with a new album, but in December they released a new album and it probably would have been on my best of 2021, except I didn't pick it up until like a day or two left in 2021. The CD is called Many a Mile and the song um, was called I Owe It to Myself. Uh, just vintage Blue Rodeo. I don't think they've done a bad thing. Nice. The last one is my favorite album from 2021, a band called The Canals. 
I first heard them in the 80s when I worked at College Radio at Michigan State. They had an album called Fun and Games. Um, they have a new album that just came out last year called Stedman's Wait, and the title track is really, really good. The whole album is excellent. So that would are be you a favorite. are you a Sparty, Bill? I am. Oh, is All he right. a Sparty? Come All right. right. Yeah. Go green. I like Go it. Green. Yeah. <laughs> Take it to the Wolverines. <laughs> oh, the greatest. Absolutely. The greatest. He's speaking our language now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> T, what's in your head? I got uh, a, a sort of recent uh, song off a recent album from the band Seether, a song called Dangerous, Total Jam, Total Jam. Um, those guys are pretty good. Uh, you know how sometimes uh, My Morning Jacket, as much as we've made fun of them, Nub, just every now and again, they get it right. Yeah, you every know? now and very much, uh, 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 very long periods of time and again, yes. There's a song off their new record. Just just listen to it. I promise you'll like it. It's called Complex. It's I mean, really good. Yeah. yeah, you know this yeah. one? Oh, okay. of course. Yeah. 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 I mean, every so often those guys, as annoying as they are, just kind of shift all the gears correctly and get it right. You know what I mean? And I think on Complex, they do. And uh, lastly, Nub, I'm going to pull out our friend from upstate New York. We've talked about a lot. That's a Benny Mardonez and uh, his opening track on the blue album, as they called it. I never really loved you at all. Fantastic song. Love Benny. Love me some Benny. What do you got, buddy? You've carried the Benny Mardonez flag for decades now. Huge fan. Yes, absolutely. Uh, First for me is the lead single from the album from a couple years ago from a band we've talked about on the podcast and you will know us by the trail of dead. That is don't look down. Great lead single from their most recent album. Second is uh, I'm not a big St. Vincent fan, but she put out one record that I really love. And and one of the singles off it was a song called Digital Witness. I really respect her as an artist. I just don't love all of her music, but Digital Witness is an awesome song. Hmm. That third. Did you listen to some Nico after that? Oh, come on. Nico. Really round it out. Come on. And uh, (laughs) and, uh, third, you know, let's just have Josie take that vacation far away and go with a song Bill Keith probably listened to a lot back in the day, and that is Your Love by The Outfield. Still a great song. Oh, God, yeah. Really oh, I love The Outfield. Yeah. yeah, for sure. More another, another group of Canadians, if I'm not mistaken. I think you're right. I think you are correct. Bill Keith, thank you so much for joining us for the Leftover Tour episode. It's been a lot of fun. You've brought yeah, a man. tremendous amount of Kansas expertise, and we appreciate it. We'll have to do it again right. sometime. Anytime. That was a lot of fun. For sure. And T, thanks for all your insights and takes as well. And we want to wish everybody a very good start to this new year. We could still call it that since we're still in the month of January at time of recording. And we want to remind all of you to take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we will see you again in a couple of weeks for the next edition of Two Twins and an Album. Two Twins and an Album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.